This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. Hello and welcome to Primal Screen, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. Thank you as ever to Phoebe Squared for the last three hours of MAPS. I am your host, Paul Anthony Nelson, and in the virtual studio tonight, I am joined once more by Sally Christie. Hello, hello. Flick Ford. Hey, Paul. And our very special guest star, Cerise Howard. So special right now. <laughs> Hi, folks. The- Hello, listeners. Hello, screeners. Screeners. There it is. Uh, So as the state of Victoria has gone COVID-free for over three weeks, it's safe to return to the cinema. So from next week, we'll be returning to our regular format of reviewing two or three new cinema releases each week, which means tonight we bid a fond farewell to our eight-month run of ISO specials, focusing on films you can stream, rent, or buy from your own home, which have gotten us through this insane year. So we thank you, dear listeners, for sticking with us as we discovered and spotlighted so many great older films and a few newer ones, and we hope you enjoyed listening to them as much as we did hosting them. But we are sending the ISO specials out with a bang, as tonight we've got a huge treat in store for you. We're going to be spotlighting the films and career of one of the most exciting new filmmakers of the last 10 years, visionary UK writer-director Peter Strickland, with a long-form chat with the man himself. So Flick Cerise and I chatted to Peter about his career and his unique filmmaking style, and we are honoured to share this fun, enlightening conversation with you tonight. In between interview segments, we'll uh, discuss his four feature films to date, the 2009 suspense drama Catalan Varga, A Quiet Tale of Vengeance, set in the wilds of Romania, then 20 and 2012's Jalo-styled psychological thriller Barbarian Sound Studio, starring Toby Jones as an English folly artist driven slowly insane by a toxic work environment at a 1970s Italian film studio. 2014's erotic romance The Duke of Burgundy, where two women negotiate their relationship through games of dominance and submission. And 2008's horror comedy In Fabric, where a cursed red dress brings misfortune to all who purchase it from the world's weirdest department store. Also, as you listen to us chatting uh, with Peter and about his films, please feel free to hit us up on our social media channels and leave a comment. Just search for Primal Screen on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, listeners, before we get into the films, here are some things you... Oh, rather, before we get into the interview, I should say. Here are some things you may or may not know about Peter Strickland. He was born in 1973 to a Greek mother and British father in Reading, Berkshire in the UK, which is both a fairly drab, perfectly average British town and apparently some kind of hotbed hotbed breeding ground for film directors, uh, having housed none other than David Lean, Kenneth Branagh and Ricky Gervais, as well as Peter Strickland. In 1996, Strickland travelled to New York to make his first film on 16mm film, uh, Bubblegum. Uh, tracking down legendary Andy Warhol factory star Holly Woodlawn and iconoclastic cinema of transgression filmmaker Nick Zed to star in it. Uh, 
Uh, it ended up costing him so much to put together, he never made another film until 2004 uh, when he made the short A Metaphysical Education, followed by a one-minute proof-of-concept short for his then-planned feature, Barbarian Sound Studio. He spent much of the 2000s living and teaching English in Slovakia and Hungary, where he still currently lives. The dam broke for him in 2006 when a small inheritance gave him enough money to finance his feature film debut, Catalan Varga. Shot in Romania for th- uh, €30,000, the picturesque low-key thriller premiered at the Berlin Film Festival, winning the Silver Bear for outstanding artistic contribution for its sound design and winning Strickland, the European Film Award for European Discovery of the Year in 2009. After making Barbarian Sound Studio, released in 2012, Strickland was tapped by none other than Björk to co-direct the epic concert film to accompany her seventh studio album and multimedia project, Biophilia. A musician himself, Strickland has also directed music videos for indie bands uh, like uh, Flying Saucer Attack, The KVB, and A Hawk and a Hacksaw. Between his third film, 2014's The Duke of Burgundy, and his fourth and most recent film, 2018's In Fabric, uh, Strickland directed a trio of radio plays for BBC's Radio 4, The Len Continuum, The Len Dimension, both starring his Barbarian star, uh, sound studio star, Toby Jones, and an audio adaptation of Nigel Neal's famed 1972 TV horror hit, The Stone Tape. Strickland also keeps himself fresh in between features by directing short films, 2010's Conduct Phase, 2019's GU04, which is currently streaming on Mubi, and 2020's ASMR-based short film, Cold Meridian. Now that we've gotten to know Peter a little, early last week, thanks to Cerise, she, Flick, and I spoke to Peter at his home in Hungary via Zoom in a wide-ranging chat covering everything from his origins and inspirations to his uses of music and artifice, and even how hard it is for even an acclaimed festival-favorite film director to get films made nowadays. So grab a drink, settle in, and join us as we meet Peter Strickland. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Paul Anthony Nelson, Flick Ford, and Sally Christie. We are here minus Sally Christie, but we we do have uh, Cerise Howard with us, and we are talking to the subject of tonight's ISO Spotlight episode, Mr. Peter Strickland. How are you, sir? I'm well. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Sorry, I got you halfway through a, a mouthful of coffee. I do apologize. <laughs> it's not coffee. I won't hear what it is, but anyway. <laughs> it's the good stuff. It's the strong stuff. So you're currently in Hungary under lockdown, and we thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. One thing that's always intrigued me about you, Peter, is is what's a nice Englishman from Reading doing working in the motifs of of what a lot of critics would call Euro trash like this. I've always been fascinated. What led you well, there? I think Reading has a lot to do with it. I, I grew up in a very polite middle class suburban environment, and I remember buying the cult movies book by Danny Peary. That was the first book I got of that kind of, you know, which led on to things like film as a burst of art and. and Midnight movies and so on, but I remember seeing films like A Razor Head in, in, in that book before, before I, I, I had seen them and um, Trash, the, the Paul Morrissey film. And I think it was just that search for something exotic. Everything just seemed so, I don't know, um, out of reach for something for someone like me. And I, it's hard, hard, to, hard to gauge it really, but yeah, I was just drawn to 
that kind of world. Filmmakers who were making very personal, dreamlike reveries, filmmakers who would build their own sets in their apartments, people like Jack Smith, Kushar Brothers, and much later on when I discovered him, people like Wakefield Paul. So yeah, that was something I was really attracted to. I don't know why. <laughs> it's funny because I, I think I grew up in a similar kind of way in terms of I'd, I'd never got my hands on the Danny Perry book, uh, unfortunately. Um, I, it feels like that's inspired a generation of, of filmmakers and critics. And yeah, no, no. I mean, there, there, there are three of those books. And um, this is back when you just couldn't see those films that, that easily. So I saw a handful, but most of them I had to imagine what they would be like. So films like... Jodorowsky's El Topo, you just could not see that because I think Alan Klein was sitting on those films. When I bought the William C. Wees book, Light Moving in Time, on people like Kenneth Anger, Sam Brackish, Jordan Belson, Mayor Darren, again, it was very, very difficult. So what you had back then was this anticipation of something that really activated the imagination. It was very frustrating, but now I'm kind of quite grateful for that period because you had to kind of make things up in your head, which were very different from what the films would be like, which kind of these accidents in your head of what you thought you were influenced by would somehow lead into something quite different, but not as a purposeful thing. It just, just because you just didn't have that concrete influence in front of you, perhaps. And also your imagination kind of working on it as well and how your unique um, frame of mind kind of frames these images and these synopses and, and which, in, which in a weird way is almost like your filmmaking in a way. It's like you, there are these films by Jess Franco and Jean Roland and Sergio Martino and it's like they've gone through the Peter Strickland filter and it's like and it's this sort of view of the world and these stories in that style but but remixed by, by your completely unique point of view. I've always been fascinated by that in your filmmaking as well as the tactility of them well yeah i mean uh, i guess especially with the italian stuff i i suppose i was just cherry picking i was going through what i I was attracted to so you know when it came to the violence i can kind of take it or leave it i wasn't i wasn't so much into that but what they had was this flamboyance they had this Great hair, great lighting, you know, I mean, very superficial things, which I really keyed into. Weirdly, there was this kind of Circean element to some of those films. You know, you mentioned Martino, the, the Scorpion's Tale, you know, with a great soundtrack by Bruno Nicolai. It's, there were, there were like vestiges of Douglas Sirk for me, maybe not for a film critic, but, um, I, I, I keyed into that. I, I keyed into this ethereal atmosphere, but especially the soundtracks. So a lot of it was just this kind of magpie thing of picking what I liked. And I suppose I, I wanted to kind of take these genre, what would you call it, archetypes, and just put them in very ordinary situations or very human conflicts. I mean, specifically the... Duke of Burgundy, which was coming off a lot of Euro cinematicistic exploitation cinema, but really looking at the idea of the domino, that iconographic figure that is a performance for those characters. You know, what happens when they go to bed? What happens when they take off the uniform? And, and I really wanted to kind of look at that in, in a very um, human 
fashion and just look at a relationship where I'm not trying to judge it. I'm just saying, you know, who who should compromise? Somebody who wants something but can't get it or somebody who doesn't want to do something but has to do it. And I'm not really I want the I want the audience to kind of go away and argue that one. Um, you know, you see Cynthia who clearly feels uncomfortable putting on this persona, which is not her, putting on this act, this, this fear of performance. And Evelyn has this very profound need. So, I mean, yeah, I guess I was taking this window dressing of, of 70s Euro cinema, just trying something, I guess, that hopefully an audience can relate to, you know, even if they're not in golden showers, I think you can understand this idea of compromise in a relationship. Actually, Something that stood out to me, I rewatched uh, In Fabric last night and I also coupled it with Catalan Varga and so many of your films deal with artifice and, and, and there's this beautiful um, visual design, of course, and with costuming. But I was really curious because I had such, I remember when I first watched In Fabric and I had such a personal connection to the characters and the same with um, Duke and Burgundy. And I just wondered, how do you engage with artifice without it being a sort of distancing? Um, because so often we see that in cinema where artifice becomes this kind of block between the audience and the film. Yeah, it's true because a lot of films, they use that and they can be quite ironic, which doesn't really work for me. Everything, become, everything ends up in quotation marks. I think I've got it from music, maybe not even knowingly, I mean, stuff like, you know, Neil Tennant and Chris Lowe with the Pet Shop Boys, you know, their whole ethos was artifice. But within that, somehow you can really puncture the heart. I don't know why, but I, I kind of got that from a lot of pop music, actually, which revels in artifice. I mean, Carly Minogue, I mean, that's another great example. In cinema, I, I loved Power and Pressburger. In a very, it was using artifice in a quite a different way. Um, I just love that theatrical element. and I, I, It's really hard to put into words. But yeah, I mean, definitely a lot of the time, may, maybe not in Varga, but certainly in the last few films, I was aiming for that. I think maybe it, it, it's a kind of relief where you have this plasticity to what you're seeing that amplifies the emotions even more because maybe you're not expecting them. I'm, I'm not sure. But mm. and something, I don't know if I'll do it all the time, but I mean, for those films, it's something I wanted to, to try. Yeah. If you've just tuned into Primal Screen on Triple R, you've been listening to the first part of our chat with writer-director Peter Strickland in tonight's spotlight on his films and career to date. I've always loved that, um, that exploitation films without exploitation. Uh, that he, he seems to do. I, I found that really interesting hearing um, Peter talk about that as well. Um, I, I love his work. I honestly think that Peter Strickland's one of the greatest living filmmakers at you know that we that we have, and I love that he's worked with genre cinema. Um, one thing that I really like about it is he goes in with these genre conventions that we're all really familiar with, and we think we know what we're getting, particularly with Barbarian um, Sound Studio. And it, we have these giallo conventions, but it's not that at all. It is, um, you know, a psychological thriller, like you were saying before, Paul. And he does that with all of his films, um, with Catelyn Varga, with it being a rape-revenge film where it doesn't play into what we expect it to be. And those, there's little shout-outs to it, like that amazing scene um, on the boat in Catelyn Varga, which for me makes me instantly think of I Spit on Your Grave, 
um, those iconic scenes there with her on the boat. Um, but yeah, he plays he plays with us and our expectations there, which is something I really really enjoy about his work. Actually, that boat scene, I was just thinking the soundscape in his films is obviously so um, well thought out, but that boat scene is fantastic because it's not just the camera angle that's sort of swaying as well. I mean, it's such a difficult conversation that these characters are having, but it's also the sound as well. So you have like distortion on all sorts of levels going on, like a narrative sense, like what's being said and, and the camera movement and then also the sound. It's really an exceptional film, isn't it? It is. Yeah. I think when he plays with genre, it's it's very organic. There's no great mm. contrivance. No, I'm going to take the the tired old tropes of this or that beloved genre of yesteryear and put it through some sort of a, a tweakatron 5000 and come out with something original <laughs> and wacky. It's actually um, original just purely by dint of it being something that only his feverish imagination could produce and. Mm. And, and all of the, the things that exploitation cinema, especially, say, the 70s, the golden age, you might say, for Euro exploitation, all of the stuff that used to be fetishised there is in his cinema as well, but he often fetishises other things too, other textures. He's very such a tactile cinema, which I'm sure is going to come up in his conversation yet. But he, his fetishistic attention to detail hones in on things like outmoded technologies like mm. uh, in Berberian sound studio where the studio is just one enormous fetish object all that beautiful weird analog gear um, and all the mysteries of all of, of just capturing and manipulating sounds using it I love that stuff too it's funny it's it's that kind of thing is what you said before Cerise it feels like almost the opposite it's like he think it's like he thinks in exploitation film form so he gets these original ideas and just wants to tell stories about two humans but it comes out looking and feeling like a jalo <laughs> but you know he's telling this you know, this this story about this guy basically being bullied by his workmates um yeah and i i love that about him and it's and it's one of those things i've always kind of wanted to do as a filmmaker i i i kind of want to be more like more like strickland <laughs> i want to i want to be able to filter <laughs> you know, original stories through a, uh, a exploitation filter rather than the other way around. Um, and I think that's why, yeah, his work seems so fresh and original. And, and like, I mean, the thought of uh, uh, um, talking about compromise uh, by using BDSM in uh, Duke of Burgundy is just genius. I mm. love that idea. It's like how, how to talk about compromise in a relationship. Perfect, perfect. Yeah. Actually, I personally love the fact that his his upbringing in Reading is exactly what led him to this place. Like there's this kind of idea that, you know, artists need to move to places like New York or London or yes. you know, somewhere kind of like where there's all these things ta- happening. But it's like, no, maybe you just need to <laughs> grow up in this kind of industrial city and um, have a kind of strange amount of, you know, retail work experience and that'll get you <laughs> and, and have someone hand you a copy of danny perry's cult movies <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i just love that kind of really t- huge twist on like the creative origin story <laughs> <laughs> it comes with the most boring suburb possible yeah. <laughs> but yeah and and all of his films are also as we'll, you know we'll keep going through this are also distinctly different like yeah, they're incredibly. all clearly the same voice mm. Incredibly, incredibly different, especially going back and um, re-watching Catelyn Varga. It feels so different to um, his last three films, but still, you know, it's really his. Yeah. So uh, we're, uh, we're, we'll 
go to a song. But after that, we will continue part two of our interview with uh, Peter Strickland. You're listening to Primal Screen on 3RRR. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Flick Ford, Sally Christie, Cerise Howard and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. And just prior to those station announcements, you heard Cat's Eye's lovely title theme from the Duke of Burgundy, just one of the films we're chatting about tonight in tonight's interview and spotlight on the films of British writer-director Peter Strickland. Speaking of which, let's dive into part two of our interview with Peter Strickland. You made Bubblegum in, uh, in 96, and I think it's amazing that you went to New York and tracked down Hollywood Lawn and cinema of transgressions nick zed but it was a long road between that and your debut feature catalan varga you made that with a family inheritance it was buy a flat or make a movie in transylvania what inspired you to go i'm gonna make a eastern european folk style rape revenge movie as my debut film well i had a bunch of scripts at that point i mean i'd written how many christ maybe not that many actually four or five so it was by that point, I mean, Varga was one of them. And it was um, a more calculated thing of which one can I practically do. They're all quite different scripts, and none of them got made afterwards. I realised after that film that I, they, all, they all had issues. So the, the cost was a factor. One of those scripts was kind of almost like Jallo-like. You know, I just knew we just couldn't afford to make it. Whereas Varga, you know, it's all ready-made locations, but I see you know, it's like found rooms and so on, shooting outdoors. So, I mean, it was a very stripped down shoot. It was 11 of us in, in, in the crew, no makeup, no hair, three lamps, no, no tracks, no steady cam, just a tripod, 17 right. day shoot. So it, it was fast. It was, I think it cost 30,000 30, euro to get it to the edit stage. Um, but I, I suppose that again came from exploitation cinema, and you know, I don't want to be didactic, but I suppose looking at some of those films, I, I know I had issues with the titillation and so on, and I just try to look at it differently, you know, to not show the attack, and in a way, not to have the actual revenge at the end, and and just treat the audience like being in a courtroom, looking at a character you find 10 years later who might well have changed. And I'm not the one to sort of say, should he be forgiven or not? I'm just presenting this this world. And you, 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 know, you, you sort of look at war criminals and quite often, you know, when they're found, they're with their family or whatever. And um, so I just wanted to make something just messy in terms of your, what's the word? Yeah, your moral bearings. And another thing that's always fascinated me about your style is that, and and again, you've you've touched on it, is the sensuality of your work, particularly just in sounds and in visions and in repetitions. Is that something that has always really appealed to you about these sort of films? Is that aesthetic sensuality? I suppose so, yeah, because I, I suppose I always, from very early on, I just gravitated to that, that kind of cinema that was very tactile or was very aesthetically driven or formalist, um, so starting with the razor head, but then going on to um, a lot of the uh, 
abstract cinema from America. So Jordan Belson, the Whitney Brothers, Stan Brackage, May- Maya Darren. Yeah, but they were purely about the sensory. I suppose I just wanted to make the kind of films I would like to see in cinema. But the whole frustration with that is, you know, once you've made those films, you don't really want to see them. You might see them <laughs> with an audience just to gauge it. But then you're so... You can't enjoy your own films. And I'm not saying that out of any false modesty. It's just you've lived through so much to put them there. And you can't really glean any magic. You can when you write them. You feel this has got some kind of impetus to it. Or, but I think what, what, once you've gone through all the bullshit... But it's wonderful if someone else likes it. It's 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 a great it's a great boost, you know, to hear you now. I mean, especially after the film has been cancelled for the third time, it makes one feel they can keep going. But yeah, so aesthetically, ah, it's hard, hard to answer really. Um, on a very basic level, yeah, I, I I'm just attracted to, to to that that kind of film. But you know, it's it's quite a wide palette, you know. I mean, the aesthetic thing can range from again from Douglas Sirk to gay pornography um it, it just spans a lot of stuff you know it's it's sort of seeded throughout particularly you know duke of burgundy and forever but i feel like with each film your sense of humor creeps in more and more and particularly with in fabric like in fabric is hilarious at times and it's so disarming because you go into this kind of killer dress jalo visuals and then you've got julian barrett and <laughs> steve warham <laughs> having <laughs> orgasms over washing machine that is um, my favorite <laughs> repair <laughs> oh excellent not everyone like those scenes i can tell you that now but yeah <laughs> Yeah, I, I watched that, rewatched that last night. Fa- absolutely fabulous scene. <laughs> and I, oh, I'm I guess- glad, you know, because some people wanted it out, but I, I kept it in anyway. <laughs> we are indebted to you for doing that. Because I, I guess, have you always had this kind of absurdist sense of humour? Is that something that you've always been attracted to? <sighs> yeah, I mean, I enjoy humour. I've never had it in me to be a comedian. I mean, that I, it was just the most daunting thing on earth. On, on, yeah, I, I, just, I just couldn't do it. But, you know, I suppose a lot of filmmaking is, I think we're quite shy. I mean, maybe not, maybe not Tom Hooper, but, you know, I think most of us are quite, <laughs> you know, I think we write because we're not that good at talking and being in front of an audience is, is quite daunting. So, but I think within that safety of being in, in, in a room and putting stuff on paper, I mean, it's a weird one. Because in fabric, when I wrote it, the initial impetus was about, I guess, the, the visceral reaction to clothing, um, so looking at the the power of a dead person's clothing, a, a person who was very, who was very close to you, um, how charged that is. Fetishism, you know, the association of certain type, types of clothing, um, body dysmorphia, you know, how you feel when you put something on, you know. So I mean, looking at people like Reg and Babs, where He's got this, you know, embarrassing hosiery fetish that you can't really express to Babs. She doesn't really get it. She's got body dysmorphia. He doesn't. He doesn't really get it. So for me, it was quite sweet. You know, that's couples for you. They don't really get each other. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, 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 that was a starting point. And then you start to write the script, and you. I wanted to make the characters. I, I didn't want them to feel like I'm attacking them for being consumers because I was, I was not doing that. So I want to follow them on their day to day lives. And, look at the bank so you feel why wouldn't they go to the shops and get some retail therapy and then i guess the humor just comes in that way really 
you know, with, 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 with the shop talk, a lot of that came from British. I don't know how it was in Australia, but we use euphemisms a lot in Britain. Yeah, I'm going down down the job centre years ago, and um, it was a job for um, like a warehouse job for stacking shelves at night, and the, the job title was Twilight Replenishment Operative. Um, so exactly, you know. So I mean, I mean, it's it's kind of odd for me because I, in fabric, to me, is just an exaggeration of British high street life. I mean, of course, you know, I, I I'm tweaking it, I, I'm exaggerating, but. It's not that weird for me, and the stuff I find weird, other people don't find weird. Like all this, all the dress, supernatural stuff. To me, that is weird. But it's so much part of the language of film culture that people don't find that weird. So it's, it's interesting how people perceive the, these things. If you've just tuned in, you've been hearing part two of our extended interview with writer director Peter Strickland here on Primal Screen on Triple R. Uh, so yeah, he goes a little into, uh, his, uh, latest film in fabric there, as well as his first film, Catherine, uh, Catalan Varga. Um, I was amazed he shot that, his first film, uh, with a crew of 11, um, it felt very relatable crew of 11, $30,000, uh, three lamps. It's pretty much, they're almost identical that what we should have shot our first film with, but, uh, I didn't shoot Romania. I actually think some one of the things I've liked the most about um, having these filmmaker interviews that we've, we've kind of spot, focused on this year is it's the relatability, actually, like yes. hearing how difficult it is and actually how to finance films and, and persevering. I've actually found, I was thinking about that today, just that, um, you know, if you're in the industry, it's so... Um, I don't know, inspiring, I think. And, like, yeah, it's come up a lot in a lot of our chats. And uh, and Peter will lament about it further later on, as we'll hear <laughs> in one of the later parts. Well, he was an extraordinarily game to make uh, Catalan Varga's first film. Let's also not forget that it is not an English-language film and he's in a country far from where he um, emerged. Um, it's, it's a very unusual first feature for an English, a nominally English filmmaker. Um, and uh, and introduced us to Fatima Muhammad, who's been a fixture in his cinema ever since. And she's this lovely thread through all his films. Mm. And she's largely kept that accent through through much of them, which is, I mean, she delivers those lines in, in fabric with such extraordinary relish. And what lines they are is that oh, extremely so kooky. Great. Kooky straw hand in that <laughs> bonkers best. department store. I've been quoting her all week, actually. <laughs> can you run one off the top of your head? There's um, such labyrinth yes. constructions. Um, oh, you can. Yeah. Um, destroy, what was it? Destroy two birds with one stone. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one of the pithier ones. Some of them are <laughs> yeah. rather more uh, floral. Yes. Yeah. Mm. I, I, love, I love thinking about in fabric and that kind of... Um, that concept of, you know, a killer dress and hearing Peter talk about the transformative power of clothing and uh, I guess how that can really change someone. For me, clothing has always been really very important in expression and the way that I feel about myself. And, yeah, I I love the way that he's put that into that film in a very extreme, absurdist way and, um, yeah, really bloody funny film as well. 
It is, isn't it? I was reflecting on that before. I just think it's amazing how much humour is in this film. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful, isn't it? Like it's such a strange little combination of genre styles in some ways. And then just um, Julian Barnes, like Julian Barnes just on camera will always make me laugh regardless of what he's doing. (laughs) But um, it's a wonderful, wonderful moments in that film, really. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, like that's why I had to ask him about humor at that point because, like, it's so hilarious. And he's like, I guess he's had moments of humor throughout his films, and there's definitely a satirical bent to some of what he does, um, not in a spoof type way, but just in an observational way. Um, but in Fabric takes it to another level. Uh, yeah, for me, I, I, very, I think I said when I, yeah, when I, when I reviewed it on this show. Uh, earlier or late last year i feel like to me it's like the dr strange love of consumerism it's like this great beautiful uh definitive satire on Mm. the way uh the way we consume and consumerist culture um by the way dimensions and proportions transcend the prisms of our measurements well exactly i mean i've always said as much right Actually, just a point that um, I sort of realised after our chat with Peter, which is a bit sort of frustrating, is it's actually the the strange store is is true of all of the the um, companies in this film. They're all very odd. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of you know we focus in on yeah we focus in on the fashion store, but actually each of them has their own little weird rituals and fascinations and really getting into that like, petty detail, um, mm. which I I really love. The set, particularly what rewatching the film, you kind of focus more into that. Um, yeah, that yeah. bank is not ordinary. <laughs> no, <laughs> the little grillings. Um, she gets, I uh, forget her character's name, their lead um, from uh, uh, Julian uh, Marianne Jean-Baptiste. Yeah. Those, those incredibly awkward, surreal, digressive conversations they have are incredibly funny and desperately inappropriate and odd. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I love because I think they do tap into a certain truth. Like I've definitely been in, in worked jobs where you kind of get pulled up for this tiny little thing. Oh, how long you're on your feeding time yeah. <laughs> right, and stuff like that. So, yeah, I thought it was wonderfully, wonderfully relatable in like obviously an extreme measure, yeah. And even the the aesthetic of the commercials, like clearly pulled from like British, but we had ones like this as well. Like yeah, I, we I was getting big Eric Planensek vibes, you know, oh, yes. from <laughs> from some of the ads that were in the movie, um, and just these like in the and then the the weird characters beckoning you to the store. It's so brilliant. Um, I I I just love it. Uh, so. Now, uh, let's, uh, shall we rejoin our heroes on Zoom for part three of our interview with Peter Strickland, asking him about the influence of music on his life and work. With your music work, um, because are you still part of um, Sonic Catering Band? Are you still involved with that? Um, No. Um, (laughs) No, Okay. (laughs) I'm amazed you picked up on it. Very few people pick up on it. I'm Um, I'm, I'm a researcher. (laughs) (sighs) Bizarrely enough, the film that just got cancelled was the biopic of our band. Wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Fatma Mohammed was going to play me. And Excellent. Was going to play the other members of the band. Um, so we're not together anymore. We're still friends. And um, I think the band approved. You know, I sent them the script to my biopic, which is completely fa- fabricated. Um <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I mean, the band was, we formed in 1996 as a way of keeping active because I just made a short film with, um, Hollywood Lawn and Nick Zed and 
that was back in the days of 16 mil and steam backs it just cost a bomb to make it and um i just couldn't afford to make another film and i knew that that would be the case for for, for years so i wanted to keep trying things so we formed this band which was kind of similar to what alan splett was doing with the razor head mm-hmm. we're using reel-to-reel tape and you know, I was never very good, so I relied a lot on Colin Fletcher and Tim Kirby in the band. They were the real technical people that could realise these ideas. I mean, you know, we had a great time, but it was... Mm. We all ended up doing other stuff, so, you know, we all yeah. have our own things to do now. Well, I bring that up because I was curious to know what role music plays when you're coming up with these films and sort of starting to, to sort of think through them and, and plan them out. Well, I think, I guess music starts as a way of just getting me in the mood to write. So sometimes it can be something quite upbeat just to wake myself up because I'm quite lethargic this year, especially. It could be something atonal or dissonant just to kind of get me out of real life and just to get me in the mood for what I'm writing. But I mean, I'm, I'm quite into the idea now of maybe not, not this kind of film, but just writing something without music. I mean, I love films. I mean, like Joanna Hawk, which she very rare. Okay, in the, I think in Souvenir, yeah, she she used music in Souvenir. But I mean, up, up until that film, she was not using music, and it worked really well. So it still is what the film needs. It just so happens that the films I've made so far I needed this kind of slightly lush, saccharine counterpoint. But yeah, I I was very lucky to work with some great people like. Rachel Zephyra, Faris Badwan, Trish Keenan, James Cargill, Tim Gaines. So been very blessed in, in that way. And I, you know, I was I was a big fan of of, of, of of those people. I mean Cat's Eyes is slightly different because they just released their debut album. Whereas the other bands I I followed their careers for years. But yeah, it's a tricky one because sometimes, you know, you notice with my generation of filmmakers, you know, a lot of them get caught up on their favourite bands from the 1990s. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to sort of, you know, I kind of, you know, I think it was great that Jonathan Glazer discovered Nicka Levy. That was a stroke of genius. So I think it's it's always interesting to sort of see who is out there who's not that well well known. Yeah, well, Cavern of Antimatter is, um, I mean, their score, their work on In, in Fabric is some of my favourite film music of the last few years. In, and wow. fi- and finding the uh, the soundtrack frustratingly difficult to get my hands on. Yeah, well, that was a bit of a, yeah. Um, what happened was the film didn't do that one at all. It, it, it bombed the box office. And there was lockdown at that time. When, when, so basically, I think... Um, the band and their manager just made a, a calculation. They, they couldn't afford to pay for storage costs on something that won't sell, as, especially as, as they're not touring. So I think they estimated 1,500, which is not that limited. And um, mm. it genuinely caught us by surprise. They went within a few hours, and these yeah. bastards were putting it on eBay for twice the price the day after, which didn't help at all. So at the beginning, it was great. Like, wow, it's selling, but then... <laughs> kind of backfired so yeah I, I was really happy with that we put a lot of well it's it's, it's the band it's not, it's not really anything to do with me but uh, i was just happy with the artwork i was happy with the whole thing it was a really great experience for me um, i only have one copy actually i mean i think even tim only has one copy it's really limited but it's yeah i have to say i'm quite happy with my copy yeah <laughs> yes 
You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favorite podcast platform. Shall we dive into the fourth and final installment of our interview with Peter Strickland? Peter, as you know, our friend Alexandra, Helen Nicholas, a friend to you and a friend to us here at the 3RRR, a former colleague on Plato's Cave, a precursor to Primal Screen and sometimes still guest on on this show. And John Edmund uh, co-edited a a book, which I am holding in my greasy little mitts as we speak. Yeah, Strickland. It's a, a wonderful collection of, of essays, I think most, if not all of which, appeared in, in Senses of Cinema initially, including a piece of my own where I wrote about the fetishism and especially a sort of synesthetic quality to your cinema. You provided a lot of material from your own archive for this book, though, that can't be found on Senses of Cinema. Is it a joy for you to My room, roughly? not my archive, my, my bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> Same thing, is it not? <laughs> Is it, is it a pleasure to you to go rifling through your your bedroom then, if, if, if not in fact your your old filing cabinets? Oh, it was very cathartic actually. Um, it was a really good excuse to clean things up because I, I was everything was in chaos, and I think John will tell you it took a long time to to find things. So it was really gratifying to. It took weeks sometimes, but yeah, it was it was just. I mean, of course, I think any filmmaker would just be. Very flattered to to have the, you know to, to have that chance to put really early stuff. I mean, that's my first ever theatre piece from 1992. That's in there, and a lot of the short films. You know, I mean, a, a lot of the time I'm really into the short stuff. I still do them in between films, and that that very much informs the feature films. So uh, yeah, no, I was um, thrilled. Yeah, there is a, a, a certain pleasure I can only imagine having a monograph dedicated to your work. Uh, Peter, you've spoken about ASMR as something you experience and have since, um, well, first con- unconsciously and then consciously adopted as an aesthetic component of your cinema. Is that something likely to continue or is your explorations into synesthetic transmission of sensation through cinema something that you will be continuing? One would imagine um, you might. I might imagine I, as much. Well, the next three scripts that I've written, um, one will have cooking a lot since it's about my, my, my band. So I guess that would tick that box. One is a kid's film, so probably not. Actually, mind you, that's got cooking in it as well. So. <laughs> uh, I suppose they all do. I, 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 not on purpose. It's just, I, just, I guess it's how I perceive things or how I get off from things. I mean, the ASMR thing is, 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 is a slightly weird one because, again, as you mentioned, um, I only knew what it was in 2015 after Judy Burgundy. Someone asked me about it and I looked it up on Wikipedia and thought, oh my God, this is, um, this is really interesting. Because I remember as a kid just being really, I wouldn't say going into a trance, but finding the sounds of certain things really relaxing, you know, the sound of a very thin paper turning and stuff like that. So in Fabric, I used it very consciously. I was looking at a lot of YouTube videos around that time. And after in Fabric, I was commissioned to do an ASMR short film, which I did something a little bit different. I did like an like ASMR bad dream. But yeah, there's always this feeling of you do what you do, but at the same time, you don't want to just be too, what's the word, formulaic. There may not be. Who knows? I mean, at the moment, it's such a struggle making films. I mean, I'm just, I'm almost at the point of just, you know what, I'm just going to write a book instead. Um, the last few years have not not been easy at all. Mm. Perhaps radio work beckons again. 
Yeah, I love doing radio work. Yeah, that's that's a real treat. Nobody hassles you over the casting. Um, I think the only hassle you get is over the running time. I mean, casting is a real pain these days. I mean, I don't know what it is, but even on low budgets, people want big names. And it really, really slows you down. I mean, you can wait anything from four weeks up to 10 weeks for each actor, which you have to go to exclusively. And, you know, a whole year can just whiz by. And I don't know, you're kind of beholden to these big actors. Um, I mean, it's fine. I've got nothing against big actors, you know, if they want to do it. But it has to be this thing, you know, I think with people like Lanthimos or Lars Winter, it works because they're into it and they want to do it. <clears throat> but if you're coming to them begging, it's just not. Ah, oh, why bother? Yeah. It's always making me choke already. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so okay. much. Thank and you. Yeah. Thanks for helping with the work. That's great. Uh, thank you. Absolute pleasure, honestly. Like, <laughs> I, was, I got to midnight and I was going to keep watching. I was going to try go through, like, return to, through all your filmography. And I was like, no, I've got to go to bed. <laughs> this has been an absolute delight. And as, as a filmmaker, I personally find you quite inspiring. So thank you. Thank you. Um, for, very kind. We should probably release you back out into the, well, when I say out into the world, into the house shaped. The bed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, great. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. So have a good day. Um, yeah, see you. If you've just tuned in, you've been listening to our long-form interview with uh, British writer-director Peter Strickland. And... Uh, just to, to let you know, the book that Cerise mentions, um, Strickland, uh, looking at his life and career, is available online from the Queensland Film Festival website at www.qldff, as for Queensland Film Festival, qldff.com slash store. So, um, yeah, uh, it's where... Uh, what do we all think? Any thoughts, comments, final I'm thoughts? I'm excited for the um, films about cooking. <laughs> As and when. Definitely looking forward to that. Yeah, he needs to, He like, I'm glad we were able to kind of uh, pump up his tyres a little bit, make him feel a bit better about filmmaking. Uh, he was feeling, he was seeming a bit down and uh, our feedback was actually kind of um, buoying him, so that's nice. Well, it is, it's, it's really, I, I guess... It would be, God, so disheartening to, you know, have such successes and then particularly within Fabric, I know Peter mentioned it briefly then, but especially with the Australian release, that was released just as, you know, COVID hit. So it's this incredible film and nobody's had the opportunity to see it because of um, the pandemic that, you know, we're in. So therefore it's been a box office flop for him, which is so heartbreaking because it is a fantastic film. And if people haven't seen it, seek it out. It's in, it's absolutely incredible. So yeah, it would be so, you know, to put so much work into something and then um, yeah, people not being able to see it would be totally crushing. And also from, you know, him, yeah, I guess having this success and, you know, not being able to get something picked up in or having to, you know, get an actor, a famous actor on board to get something financed would be very, very difficult. And like you were saying before, Flick, this is something that we've heard time and time again with filmmakers that we've spoken to this year. It's a real yeah, struggle. Absolutely. And it's kind of been interesting how 
um, you know, we've heard from how the cinema, how the film industry has been affected by this pandemic in such different ways. So, yeah, I think reflecting back on this year, it was really interesting to hear Peter talk about that. And, and, and yeah, like you said, Sal, like pretty heartbreaking because mm. I think for all of us in Fabric um, definitely stood out as one of the finest films of that year yes. and also definitely up there with my, um, you know, films of the decade, whatever you kind of mm-hmm. list you need. But it's an exceptional film. Um, actually, all of his films are right. And thank they you, Therese, for um, getting me on to Catalan Vaga. I hadn't seen it before and um, that was a great recommendation. I also would forward that on to our listeners to check that out it's um exceptional very difficult watch but uh, formally there is so much there to explore I think um for students as well there would be a lot to uh, to look into about what you can do with sound and and vision it's and a small budget and a a crew far from home and in other languages that you are not fluent in if even Mm. passingly conversant in just persistence, folks. I mean, yeah. I mean, it does seem criminal that he can't just make whatever he wants when he wants. I'm outraged by this, but um, yeah. still, yes, the, the struggle is real. At the same time, he, he will prevail. I feel this. And I feel that these films that haven't necessarily found as big an audience as, as, as their due will in time find it. Yeah, uh, yeah, I feel yeah. that too. Mm. Yeah, because, you know, I mean, none of these films are big-budget films either. Like, you know, it's not a lot of money he's generally asking for. It's like, help a guy out. I, well, we're doing our bit tonight to to help grow the cult of Peter Strickland and bring more people to his films because they are all extraordinary in their own we're way. We're going to be waving towards quick. you with those, those hand <laughs> gestures <laughs> from Fabric. <laughs> all right, quick poll, quickly. Fate, uh, number one, go. Uh, flick. What was this, sir? Favourite Strickland. Oh, in Fabric. Uh, uh, Cell? Uh, Duke of Burgundy. Cerise? Uh, yeah, it's probably Duke of Burgundy. Mm. Mm. Yep. And for me, it's in fabric, I think. But Duke of Burgundy's damn close. Oh, yeah, I know. <laughs> me too. <laughs> so, like oh, your favorite child. I know. Uh, it's pretty, <laughs> it's, it is difficult. Um, so, on tonight's show, we spoke at length with UK writer director Peter Strickland, who we thank for his time and candor. And we also uh, have a huge thanks for our very special guest, guest, uh, special guest co host for tonight, Cerise Howard, for putting us in touch with Peter and making the interview happen. Thank you so much, Cerise. Very great pleasure, and thanks for having me back. Always a pleasure. Um, if you want to see any of Peter's films, and we urge you that you do, all the features, um, all the feature films he's made are available via online rental or streaming platforms. You can rent his first film, Catalan Varga, uh, via Mubi, spelled M-U-B-I, as well as one of his most recent shorts, GUO4, that's also a Mubi. His films, Barbarian Sound Studio, The Duke of Burgundy, and In Fabric, as well as the Björk concert film he co-directed, Biophilia Live, are all available to rent or buy on YouTube, Google Play, and Fetch, as well as a mixture of iTunes and the Microsoft Store. And it's also worth mentioning that Barbarian Sound Studio is also available to rent via Acme's new uh, online Cinema 3 streaming platform at cinema3.acme.net.au. You can listen back to our show within half an hour on Triple R On Demand or check out the songs we played on the Primal Screen page at rrr.org.au right now. You can also subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. Please join us next week as we return to the cinema after nine long months with some new releases. We will dig into Christopher Nolan's long-awaited sci-fi spy-high tenant. 
we will imagine an American utopia with David Byrne and Spike Lee. And Andrea Riseborough will take us over with Brandon Cronenberg's Possessor. A huge thank you to Tyler Daglish for guest editing the Primal Screen podcast and to Killer Carl Chapman for paneling and producing, providing, uh, providing producing assistance for our show. It's good night from us, but keep listening to Triple R as local and or general with Jason Moore is up next. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 